Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined in our postmodern conservative series by my good friend Paul Seaton for a conversation in memory of our friend Peter Lawler, who passed away three years ago. This is part of our series introducing the thought and the work as a public intellectual, as an editor, as a writer of Peter Lawler, and indeed his political action on the Bioethics Council of President George W. Bush. Paul, thanks a lot for joining me. It's so good to talk to you again. Please introduce yourself to our audience and let's start talking about how you met Peter and where. Thank you, Titus. Uh, It's just great to see you. I was trying to think, uh, you came and visited me here in Baltimore. Has it been as long as two years now? Time goes by pretty quickly these days, so I don't know, but... uh, Yes, it does. uh, It was 2018, you're right. Golly, Moses. Well, you know, I was glad you made a stop to Charm City during your grand American tour and uh, come on back. But, you know, wait wait till things open up a little bit more. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Great to see you and very good to be here. It's wonderful to reminisce and talk about our mutual friend, Peter. Just say real quickly, I teach philosophy at Roman Catholic Seminary in Baltimore, Maryland. Been there 15, now going on 16 years, and I like it very much. And perhaps a little bit more relevantly, I've got advanced degrees in two disciplines, philosophy and political science, and I use one to kind of take the rough edges off of the other, and I bridge them by doing political philosophy and especially French political philosophy, including people like Pierre Menant, Philippe Benetton, Remy Brog, Chantal Del Sol. No, I uh, met Peter probably 30 years ago through the good offices of uh, Dan Mahoney. And over the years, we encountered each other regularly at various venues. He hosted conferences at his Berry College in Rome, Georgia. So go down for those. We were both members of the American Political Science Association. So we'd meet at the annual APSA convention. He was a rock star with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and their annual summer programs, whether in England or uh, here in the colonies, and I would meet him there. Different friends would have conferences at their institutions. For example, uh, Ralph Hancock at Brigham Young hosted a conference on sex and marriage. Peter and I were there and talked about the fun of talking about sex and marriage in Mormon country. And I'm a pretty conservative Catholic, but I really felt like a liberal (laughs) in that context. And then um, while he was the editor of a journal, Perspectives on Political Science, I became the book review editor. So we did an awful lot of work in connection with uh, getting out good reviews and good articles for that uh, quarterly journal. So you had a very long acquaintance, decades really, Mm -hmm. and I know from you that only Dan Mahoney goes back further with Peter and he has also been part of our podcast series. For your part, how did you meet, how did you discover your intellectual affinities? My first vivid memory of spending time with Peter was at an ISI Intercollegiate Studies Institute summer program and he was just such great fun. And his love of young people and teaching came out very clearly, and uh, teaching is my vocation. So there was an elective affinity in that regard. He had been coming to these for a while, and he already had a reputation as being the funniest, the sharpest in the sense of insightful, and the coolest guy in the group. And I I will say he, he didn't seek adulation. Young people just naturally gravitated to them. He took them seriously but not too seriously. 
He was not a pedant, but if they brought up, oh, the most recent conservative book they read at Harvard, and I have a thing in mind about the Middle Ages, he would have a very opposite thing to say about it so that the young people who sometimes like to say, does he know everything or does he know what I know or not? He really showed, hey, young people, I'm taking you seriously, but I'm also above you. <laughs> so so I, I appreciated that kind of unassuming, but willing to speak his mind engagement with young people kind of initially and forever. And then he really did have a knack for vivid, colorful, memorable aphorisms, formulations, summaries. I, I do know at Barry, for years, students in his classes would collect his bone mows from class and then post them online. I actually tried to look them up in preparation for this. I couldn't find them, but uh, you know, his Lawlerisms were rightly legendary. Fun for young people, fun for middle-aged people, just fun, fun, fun. Yeah, he was an incredibly witty man, and it seems that somehow that is especially required for teaching, partly because so much that we deal with is argued in a close and sometimes in an obscure way. A degree of spontaneity, of sprezzatura, <laughs> is uh, quite opposite. It shows also the pleasure and the beautiful part of learning and how much that is tied with conversation and with sharing what you know, what you're thinking about with other people. That example of uh, love of learning combined with dialogue is not obvious, certainly not in our times, but it would seem to be the special possession of what we call the humanities or liberal arts education. And Peter was indeed a great practitioner and also a champion. He inspired the love of the liberal arts in people. He practiced at Berry College for decades, and he would write about it and talk about it whenever he had a chance to persuade people that, although it's a minority option, the liberal arts are an eternally valuable part of what America has to offer the young. It seems that it's also this openness of the liberal arts to thinking about the most important questions that connects to Peter's curiosity and his desire to learn from other people, to continuously find new authors that showed at least a touch of greatness, and of course the great authors, to discover them and to figure out what they have to say about our experiences now. I would say that the intellectual correlative of what you were saying about Peter as a friend to the young is his understanding of where philosophy begins. It's America in our times. We have certain experience that we have to think through. Peter was a great admirer of Tocqueville and, uh, as you said, in our times of Pierre Manon. This was a very important part of what Americans would have to learn from strangers, from French strangers at that, but who are friends of America and enlightened observers of America, partisans of modernity, of liberalism of America, but qualified partisans. People who also have criticisms to offer. And uh, of course it is, as Tocqueville said, very difficult to criticize America. <laughs> You're a writer on and the translator of the great French authors. Let's talk about that, the French contribution to American political science and to Lawler studies, let's say. I absolutely promise to do that. I would just like to say one more word because it's very characteristic of him and it's such a rich theme. So I completely agreed with your summary of what I had said and, and the development of it. In many respects, Peter was a Socratic teacher. His element was not the lecture, but the discussion and the conversation. 
Now, he was also a Christian, in fact, a Catholic, so I characterize him as a Catholic Socratic. And so there were other options for the human soul than philosophy, which set him apart from kind of hardcore Straussians from whom he learned a lot, but with whom he always had a chiding relationship. Okay, so he was a Socratic, but not just a Straussian Socratic. He was a Christian Socratic. And I'd add to that, it seems to me his two natural audiences were young people and then conservatives. That doesn't mean he didn't want to speak to liberals or non-aligned or stuff like that, but they were the ones that he was trying to help learn to think and then be thoughtfully engaged in our ongoing public life, whether it be discussion or practice action. Okay, so Peter and the French. There, there was kind of a Lawler before there was a Lawler. <laughs> and I'm not continuing the pre-Socratic and then the Socratic turn theme. I'm not. But Peter's early work was very American-focused. He composed the American Political Rhetoric book, a book, The American Experiment. That period culminated with his 1993 book on Tocqueville, The Restless Mind, but it came out of a love of America and then the fact that Tocqueville was a friendly critic of America. And he really helped us understand ourselves, even though he was French. And I think the engagement with Tocqueville was something of the beginning of his opening to other strands of thought than merely American. Now, that said, he had had a good education, especially in grad school with Delba Winthrop. And so he'd studied Plato and Aristotle. But the directness of Tocqueville's analysis of America really struck him and opened him to those friendly critics who aren't American, but are friendly critics of America, starting with Tocqueville. But then during the Cold War, he added to that Solzhenitsyn and Havel. Peter, to my mind, he was the most American-focused, liberally educated human being I've ever met. Everything finally got funneled into the light it sheds on America. I don't think I mean that as a criticism. It's more of an observation. He knew Solzhenitsyn was dealing with Marxist-Leninism, ideological totalitarianism, same with Havel. But he thought that their analyses of modernity in general, the West, more broadly speaking, and then the free world together with tendencies that boded very ill, technology, etc., so I'd say it was Tocqueville who really was pivotal in his developing from merely American-focused to more broadly American-focused. 93, to my mind, really does kind of complete his first period. And then, like so many thinkers, including Menant and Del Sol, with a new situation, you have to think fresh. And to my mind, it's after 93 where Peter really developed this wonderful breath and the tremendous variety of ways that he delivered his thoughts, blogging, articles, collections, stuff like that. So 93 to me is the watershed period where after that, his distinctiveness, his distinctive voice, his openness to a variety of thinkers, but still trying to understand the ongoing situation of America really kicked in. Yeah, you're right. Tocqueville seems to play such an important part in Peter's thought because Peter was always concerned, as you were saying, not just with politics and not just with philosophy. He was also concerned, of course, with the fact that we are Christians. Many of us profess the faith in various ways, but many other people do not and yet are somehow brought up in beliefs that are the Christian inheritance. That inheritance is itself, of course, complicated, so it would seem to require a kind of historical study, but it requires also 
political attention, a way of trying to think about what matter does it make that America is a Christian country, since Christianity is not an official religion. It is not part of the political establishment. It is not widely discussed in the founding documents. There are very few mentions, in fact, although they are all important, of course. And Tocqueville seems to be the first philosopher, really the only philosopher, to have uh, united America with Christianity in his discussion of America. Indeed, especially in the second of the two volumes, his concern shifts to some extent from what we might think of as regime analysis. In accordance with his intention, he wants to say that it's difficult to think about modern politics or modernity as regime theory. There are all sorts of difficulties involved. Tocqueville prefers to think of the social condition, equality, but equality has, of course, sources of its own and questionable developments, and it is not the only thing. Tocqueville says that it's not that equality is everything or has made everything, it's that everything that equality has not brought to America that was there before, equality modifies. Tocqueville tries to reinstall something like political philosophy, but in a situation where politics isn't simply the only thing that matters. This is something that Peter was so interested in because he always said that we are not simply political animals, we are not simply citizens of a regime. Even when we think of I am American, we don't simply mean part of a political regime. There are all sorts of other things involved. So I think this is why, both as a political scientist and as a Christian, he was very interested in Tocqueville. But of course, you're also right, we had to think about things differently after the end of the Cold War. A period and the definition of America and the world changed, partly because democracy was, seemed to become universal, not specifically American, in a way not endangered anymore, but in another way because when once the Cold War was over, it was much more obvious suddenly how divided America really is, and uh, people could start guessing at how much worse the divisions could become. Here, here, the Christian theme in Peter. In Tocqueville, especially in the 93 book, he encountered Pascal. And to understand the natural misery and grandeur of man, and then to understand the restlessness of the democratic soul. But it was after 93 that Augustine and Ratzinger entered into and frankly became regular and even prominent authorities and contributors to his regularly synthesized understandings of things. From Augustine, he took the chief thing at Christianity, said man is a person, he's no longer polis or empire fodder. And that's going to be the absolutely fundamental presupposition for liberalism and liberal or modern democracy. The Christian recognition that the person has a spiritual nature and destiny that means the state or the political community do not have exclusive claim on the person. So the person became a greater theme after 93, and either the Christian version or the Christian contribution to the person came to the fore. Frankly, I do see two different, if not understandings, at least emphases, following Solzhenitsyn and Havel. For him, the person was the self-conscious, conscientious mortal. Peter really did emphasize that we're born to die in the famous Augustinian phrase, and that the vocation and the task of human life is to live well in the light of the truth about ourselves. And so in Postmodernism Rightly Understood, the first book after the Tocqueville book, he took on Fukuyama and Rorty because he thought they drew the wrong lessons from the communist episode. And especially Rorty thought you could talk death to death. 
So I would say this first anthropology of Peter, self-conscious mortality, many people recognize, they said, man, are you depressed? <laughs> Uh, and even a reviewer of postmodern, rightly understood, in the review of politics, called him a Thanocentric thinker. And he wondered, I, th I thought we had done away with that. <laughs> but it was not an unfriendly, it was an observation, not so much. Okay. But then with Ratzinger, the new definition of the person he came up with is the free and relational being. So I would say Christianity became much more explicit, Augustinian, and then kind of Ratzingerian. And the person is where he uh, regularly made that point. Indeed, we could say that the political thought of Peter was wrapped around the problem of being a person. Yes. What does it mean that we insist on our individuality, but we cannot know anything about our individuality except with the help of other people? It is our families, it is community, it is faith, it is love. These things define who we are. And indeed, at the core of postmodernism, rightly understood, there is an alternative to uh, desiccated liberalism, a liberalism that is reducible to therapy and hopefulness, but which is no longer capable of stating what is the ground of hope. <laughs> What is the purpose of therapy? How are these things supposed to be articulated in a causal manner? And instead of that, he says we should be honest and look back to poetry. We have long neglected that some part of knowledge is self-knowledge, and self-knowledge we usually get at in a poetic way. His example there is Walker Percy, his favorite American thinker of the 20th century, he said. And that's not because he was a great novelist, he was only an okay novelist. But Peter said that he was so much better than most novelists because he had something to say. He talks about Lost in the Cosmos and the Thanatos Syndrome, the last of the six Percy novels. They take up some 80 pages, almost half of postmodernism rightly understood. That's how seriously Peter took the need for an account of who we are as human beings that isn't reducible to the things that endanger us a certain use of science in the human questions that will do away with everything that cannot be said simply in, in an experimental way. The great enemy of uh, Percy would seem to be Skinner, behaviorist psychology, treating human beings like rats. And that's what Peter saw as the consequence of the liberalism we have. People like Fukuyama and Rorty are nice, ironic, but what's going to happen when people realize that their ideas have no teeth in them? What if they start putting those teeth into them by turning from therapy to pharmacy and we start drugging children into being happy whether they want to or not? When we start drugging ourselves in the pursuit of productivity? This pharmacological, technological attack on our biology, on our physical nature, Peter saw as an attack on our soul. After the danger of communism, this is what he thought was the great new danger to the human person, and therefore why Christians should be able to speak poetically, intelligently, publicly, also scientifically, of course, also as political scientists or public intellectuals, in order to defend the human person. Here, here, perfectly well said. I agreed with every syllable of that. Let me add just a couple of things. It does seem to me that the problem of science, technology, and scientism, the main place where that came home to Peter was with Havel, the power of the powerless, but especially politics and conscience. That's where modernity is cast or understood as fundamentally a technological worldview and mentality that depersonalizes both object and subject. So I do think there was an affinity between Percy and communist or Soviet dissident thinkers in the problem of science, technology, and especially scientism. 
And then we do have to acknowledge that with Percy, you know, whom he, he loved dearly, his critique of country club Republicans, for example. If I could put it this way, uh, one reason that Percy attracted Peter was he could jibe everybody. <laughs> He too may have been a party of one, kind of like Tocqueville was, and sometimes when Peter was that too. Okay, but Percy also brought a third definition of being human into Peter's lexicon, man, the wanderer and the wanderer. You know, that's the wonderful combination of Greek philosophy and biblical pilgrimage. (laughs) And you're exactly right. After the Cold War, Many of the observations and maybe even warnings of the Soviet dissidents were becoming more and more realized in America and in the West. And Peter just kind of continued those studies in the new circumstances, but with new resources. Percy, you know, of course, was a Catholic, and Peter cobbled together what he called the American Catholic Thomistic or realistic tradition. It had both theologians and poets. (laughs) Brownson, John Courtney Murray, Flannery O'Connor, and then Percy. Uh, Peter, he called it a tradition. I don't know if I'd put it that way. But yeah, those were four go-to Catholic American realists and defenders of the person in the American context that he uh, very much repaired to for the rest of his life, frankly. That's right. He thought very highly of them, precisely because he equated Thomism with realism. By realism, he meant that we have to get real about our unhappiness. What's making us crazy is the fact that we insist on being happy, and whenever it doesn't work out, we just try something increasingly disastrous rather than just face the reality. We're not always that happy, and we don't always know why we're not happy, but we always realize that it has something to do with our mortality. This is who we are as beings. We know we're mortal, and therefore we don't know when it's going to hit us, but for that exact reason, it does constantly hit us in some way. Peter equated adulthood really with knowing what Pascal meant when he said that we are restless, we are troubled by our mortality. The Pascalian experience available to all Americans is being bored, which nowadays prompts us to pull out the smartphone. The iPhone is our diversion. This is the Pascalian theme. This is what we do with our lives. We divert ourselves from what we know and cannot face. Often what we pass for ideological warmongering is also really just a diversion. We play with words because we don't want to face our mortality because we do not know what to do about it. Realism doesn't mean that Peter had figured out or thought anyone was going to figure out how to be a human being (laughs) with perfect success. That would just take us back to the obsession with happiness. Realism meant facing that problem, that this is what it's like to be human. Paradoxically, we get bored. There's so much to do, and yet when we see this wealth of opportunities and possibilities, we're bored. Being forced to choose annoys us. We suspect at some level that none of those choices matter that much, that they won't add up to whatever it is that we're hoping for. In a way, our very strengths and successes, including the great Cold War victory over communism, meant that we would become increasingly desperate to divert ourselves from our mortality, to hide the truth that we're not ever going to be all that happy. He liked to quote Solzhenitsyn's famous phrase, if we were born for happiness, we would not have been born to die. Yeah. Since we are mortal, it cannot but make us somewhat unhappy. We need some kind of realism. You know, it is a very dark matter, really, that you know, Flannery O'Connor does not tell happy stories. 
Her stories are funny, but they're quite full of atrocities, because that's part of a human condition that we need to see and we least want to see how our desires for happiness, our obsession with some beautiful image that would be perfection, did us to do or to enter into catastrophes. Walker Percy's novels are less catastrophic, there's less gloom than Flannery O'Connor, but still, they're realistic, we could say. Poetry is not meant to idealize American life or the future. It is not meant to make us seem perfect or to guide us to perfection. Its only perfection is to show us as we are in a way that we can face. could say this, that Peter wanted to encourage people into this realism, but he knew that we always want to get away from ourselves. And so he used what we use to get away from our reality, which is our uniquely human capacity for imagination. And he wanted to use it against its diverting purposes. Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, all these are writers in the element of the beautiful. They make up stuff. It's not the facts. But it's a way of returning us to the fundamental facts. Peter encouraged people to understand fiction, to understand storytelling or poetry. Why we do this in the first place as human beings and what the wise use of it is. What does it mean for us to return to self-knowledge? To understand that we are selves, the conscious mortals, and therefore we need self-knowledge. We need to know how to deal with ourselves. And self-knowledge is the opposite of self-obsession. Knowing how people behave, this is what you get out of novels, this is what you get out of writing on human things. Essays do it as well, of course. Walker Percy was an essayist before he was a novelist. They show you all sorts of things that human beings do and think, and when you think about those people, you can recognize yourself in them without being so self-obsessed, without being so defensive. You can see yourself without always trying to guard yourself from any insight or from any criticism. Here, here. Yeah, with fiction, there's a wonderful distancing of yourself from your immediate passions and the contemporary world thrusting itself upon you. And Lord knows, in certain times, we really need that kind of removal. That may be one of the virtues that uh, Zena talks about in her new book, Lost in Thought. I'm going to say one thing about uh, Flannery O'Connor. This is a perfect segue to Peter on movie criticism, <laughs> where uh, literature becomes moving pictures and popular. And then I, frankly, I, I may say one word and you can say 20. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I, I remember being at a conference once and Peter brought up a short story by Flannery O'Connor. I forget which one it was, but he said, this is the most profound criticism of liberalism I know. Now that got my attention. He said, two of the protagonists, one is a Lockean bourgeois guy who thinks that property and security are the summum bonum of life. And then another character was a more progressive liberal who thought that human beings by nature were good and that even if social circumstances had adversely impacted them, we could reach out to them and improve them. And then it turns out both characters in there confront I'm going to say the devil incarnate, but we'll just say absolutely mysterious demonic evil. <laughs> and so it was a wonderful observation and synthesis about the profundity of this one particular short story whose name escapes me, that liberalism was measured. She kept it front and center on the grotesque and the unmanageable, the uncontrollable, the malevolent. But she also you know, tried to talk about the mysterious ways of grace, too. Uh, movie stuff. I mean, uh, this is part of him being a teacher. 
This is part of him of being a political scientist, observing how his country is developing and how it's trying to understand itself. And so he watched almost as many movies as you do, almost as many movies as Dan Mahoney does, and 20 times the movies that I do. And so I, I always profited from his three paragraph synopses, and here's a main point. And I I will say one of the constant foci of his contemporary movie watching was the portrayals of men and women, masculinity and femaleness in contemporary cinema. Yeah, this is how I met Peter through our common friend Carl Eric Scott as a film critic. He encouraged me to write for him at National Review Online at Postmodern Conservative. And I had by that time for years read his movie reviews. It's somewhat surprising to find a serious political scientist to talk about movies. And in a way, it's encouraging to know that there are people who are serious, both in their education and in their activity, who nevertheless understand how serious storytelling is, despite its fictional element. He didn't think of storytelling as propaganda, and he didn't think of it as moral education either. There's a Thomas distinction there. Movie making is, as the name says, a kind of making. It is not a doing. It is not something we judge morally as we judge human action. You cannot watch a movie and come out of it a good person. You cannot make a movie and come out of it a good person. But he did think that it revealed so much about what America is like. It's a great country with a lot of moving parts that don't really know each other. There are few attempts to say what goes on, what's happening. And since Peter shared Walker Percy's skepticism, to say the least, of experts, of expertise, of social sciences trying to reduce human beings to quantified studies, Peter invariably, ironically used what studies show (laughs) to describe any particular error he had in mind. And instead, the studies that he was interested in were invariably literature, but especially movie studies, because this is America. People are obsessed with the movies. They love seeing themselves in the movies, making the movies, aspiring to be in them. And in a certain way, they take them for reality, which is part of the danger of our times. As Percy's first and most prestigious novel, The Movie Goer, suggests, in modern life, we tend to think that stuff that we remember from a movie is more real than real life, because it has this shocking importance that once, of course, was the importance of religious festivals. When you know that everybody else admires this, that everybody else thinks that this is a big deal, suddenly you're looking at demigods, as we say, stars, celestial beings. That is in a certain way dangerous, but that too is part of America. You cannot stop American restlessness. We wish for more than we have, and often enough for more than we can have. And uh, Peter was quite sympathetic to this, and although he was a conservative and a Catholic and a Southerner, he was very sympathetic to the specifically Yankee restlessness that leads to all sorts of literary and movie-making fantasies, trying to give self-importance and self-flattery to obsessions and neuroses instead of being serious about life. Because people really are this way, and so unlike many conservatives, he was not particularly moralistic when he judged TV or movies. What he wanted, first of all, was to see, like Tom Wolfe did, is this researched or well-observed? Is this a real depiction of a part of America? And so he would constantly not only review, but recommend all sorts of crazy things that liberals have uh, added into pop culture, because he thought it revealed in a way no conservative can, because only liberals can make admissions against interest make movies and TV shows where they show that the ideas and the practices of liberalism have gotten people miserable. 
whatever we may say as a matter of public ideology, when people start telling stories rather than campaigning, in the stories all the unhappiness comes out. Peter was interested in this not because he wanted to beat the liberals as people want today, but because he thought there irrefutable evidence that even liberals are human beings like the rest of us, sort of miserable, sort of trying to hide it, sort of trying to deal with it, and their claim to elitism to run America, their control of whether it's the media or academia or increasingly law or any other part of you know federal bureaucracy, doesn't make them superior animals. They're just like the rest of us, but in a way way worse because they expect so much more out of life and they therefore disappoint themselves so much more. This goes to what he was always saying, that America is always getting better and worse. How can things be getting better and worse? One big reason was a Pascalian, an Augustinian insight that when you're miserable, you remember you're human. When you're happy, you might think you're a god, that you can have everything you want. You have conceived a desire, you have satisfied that desire with a click on Amazon. You've already bought the thing. You have a new distraction on your smartphone, a new fantasy that you can enjoy as though you were some fickle Greek god sporting with the lives of mere mortals. Whereas when you're miserable, you remember you're human. When you realize how badly you have deceived yourselves or have been deceived, then you return to your humanity and you are more willing to face your situation and maybe come to a realistic understanding of it. And he thought that cinema revealed this better than anything else because when we see these American people and their American lives, we're quite persuaded that the misery is real because we understand it from ourselves. We're quite persuaded that this restless attempt to finally achieve perfection, to finally escape mortality, we are that way too. And it fails and we have to become realistic. It takes a certain kind of disappointment, but that disappointment had better come with a certain pleasure of insight and perhaps a recognition of shared humanity so that we may love each other rather than hate ourselves for being failures. I, uh, Titus, I think somebody should take that thought and start a foundation, let's call it the American Cinema Foundation, and bring the wisdom of movies, older and newer and contemporary, to a broader popular audience. What do you think? <laughs> uh, just a thought. I'd Call me crazy. I don't know. Amen. And um, I, it seems to me uh, there are any number of follow-up questions one could ask. What's the relationship between the literary production and consumption in America and then movie production and consumption? You know, is there a healthy balance between the two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I actually have something, a thought by Pierre Minot in mind when I raise that. I do feel like I haven't addressed the thing you've said you'd like me to talk about, Peter and the French. So let me just say a few words about that. Again, it started with Tocqueville. And then through Dan Mahoney, he came across, you know, the good French guys, good guys and gals. Now, I think a good starting point for his interest in contemporary French thinkers like Philippe Benetton, Pierre Menant, Chantal Del Sol, Remy Brague, and some others was he had a phrase that contemporary progressive liberalism indulged in post-familial, post-civic or national, and post-religious fantasies. And that is that the human world can become a combination of radical individualism and totally unified humanity. Now, more recently, of course, group identity has been added to what I think he was talking about, radical individualism and the unified humanity, and that would complicate his analysis. But he thought that contemporary progressivism had a lot of post 
fantasies. And so because man was the free and relational being, these relations defined him, enriched him, and also limited him. And so he looked for authors who could help him articulate the good of family, the good of citizenship in modern circumstances, which means the nation state, and then the good of religious communities. Enter the French. <laughs> Pierre along with the late Roger Scruton, is the single best analyst and defender of the goodness of the nation in modern circumstances. So Pierre gave Peter an essential component of what he thought we Americans needed insofar as leading currents of thought, including technological developments that you've alluded to that very much privatize us that we Americans did need to recognize our national community, our being as citizens, and Menant, Scruton, and then eventually, and maybe even especially, Orestes Brownson helped Peter articulate the national dimension of our relational being. Yes, the 20th century was very troubling to all serious people. It was the violence, it was the claims that justified that violence, that finally human problems could be fixed. Whatever the price would have to be paid, it was fine because it would only happen the one time and then people would finally be happy. Invariably, ideas of human organization arrived that would offer even more individualism. And that individualism, as you said, always turns out to come with humanitarianism. These are the two poles of the political influence of Rousseau on modernity. A cult of sincerity in individualism and a cult of pity or humanitarianism in human affairs more broadly. Something that is too small to be believable, you yourself without any of the people you need in your life, and something too large to be believable, mankind in its historical dimension even, are the only plausible ways of talking about what it means to be human. So somehow, despite all the victories of a decent way of life over horrifying tyrannies, we end up with the same idea every time. Whatever happens, however catastrophic, people come up around again and say, actually, we should be way more humanitarian about humankind, and we should be way more self-obsessed as individuals at the same time. In a way, the funniest version of this is the singularity, where you can download your soul into a cloud, into the machines, because machines don't cry and they're not scared of death. But of course, then whoever has control of the electricity, so to speak, has absolute control of everything. <laughs> The more individualism progresses, the more absolute tyranny progresses. In a way, the ugly technology involved in this tyranny is best revealed by the singularity. Whoever controls the machines controls everything. And so somehow, what is recognizably human about us has to be defended against this tendency. Obviously, winning world wars, fending off the danger of nuclear annihilation or whatever has not changed people's minds about obsessing about even more individualism and even more globalized humanitarianism. So there was a need to do something positive, to restore the evidence of our eyes. After a century of people constantly telling you, like Groucho Marx, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? This was also part of Peter's realism. He was looking for people who are realistic as political scientists or students of political philosophy about what our experience is. We are tied to our nations. We are tied to a political understanding of our own being, how we think about action, how we think about problems that we have to solve. These things are invariably 
tied up with laws and with jurisdictions, with representation and with rights. And even though we don't have a very good grasp of these things, we're not particularly dedicated or competent citizens, this is nevertheless the way we behave. But somehow it is in very bad reputation. You're taken for a fool if you even talk about citizenship or our political relations. May, may, may I interject just real quick? Racist? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yes. I heard that on TV recently. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> yes, there is always this thing, right? It's the American problem. We can never be serious about expert elites who are trying to turn the rest of us into machines or animals because there will be this accusation of racism. Apparently, it seems to be still working. We'll see how it fares in future because we do have to confront the sorts of things that we discover when we see who holds us in contempt or what sorts of thoughts or experiences are intolerable in our public discourse, in our higher education, and so on and so forth. We have arrived at this sort of funny situation where the people running a society are the ones most eager to express contempt for that society, and especially for the majority of people on whom they depend. Whereas the people who are not in charge of the society, who aren't the elite, the formal cause of the regime, as Aristotle would say, those are the people who actually care about being American in this case about their nationality, whatever it is, whether it's Brexit or any number of very angry nations in Europe, from Italy to Hungary, etc. And of course, if you want to see a very good case of nationalism, agonized but trying, India. Too big to not notice. <laughs> but somehow, it's very, very hard to get elites to take this seriously. And it's very hard for political science to turn away from what studies show to what our own eyes show the realities involved in our experience, judgment, and therefore the possibility of self-government. And Peter did seem to learn a lot from Pierre Manon in that regard, since Pierre Manon has talked so eloquently not just about Tocqueville's understanding of modern politics and the importance of political action, really restoring a kind of Aristotelian teaching about what does practice really mean. Especially intellectuals who have no idea what it means have been talking about praxis for almost two generations now, to the point where praxis has proved to actually have nothing to do with practice. <laughs> But also, Pierre Manon talks about natural law as well, and the requirements of politics in our peculiar situation, so that we avoid this paralyzing trap of universal human rights that turn out, in fact, to give us no possibility of self-government. Common action, self-government. This is very rich. I, I'm going to make three points, but very rich. And again, one thing I think that he liked in the French political philosophers was they observed the construction of the European Union in the name of, quote, democracy, in the name of individual rights, in the name of a united humanity. And they could see where contemporary American either liberalism or neoliberalism was taking us. So they were kind of an avant-garde or a, a warning to us. So that was another reason why he liked he either hearing about them from me and Dan is that they told us what our elites really had in mind or what the logic of their position would be. Okay. Second of all, I think we do need to say one or two words about Peter's class analysis. And then the third thing is I do want to make maybe a critical comment, but class analysis, you know, he had the standard, the few, the many, and the many was the middle class and then the underclass. His heart and his mind were with the middle class, and he cast a ironic, somewhat skeptical view on the elites. And I do have to say, I don't remember him ever writing about the poor. 
And so that kind of put him at odds with a certain strand of Catholicism, (laughs) the so-called preferential option for the poor. So I think he thought the real action in our country was elites and the middle class. And, you know, after the collapse of communism, but especially, you know, after Clinton, he really thought that the elites had kind of jumped the shark and that the middle class really was getting screwed. So he did dissent from an awful lot of, we'll say, neoconservative or Reagan conservatism. It's not just lowering taxes and deregulating. We actually do need programs for this eroding, beleaguered, crumbling middle class. So he really was one of the first conservatives, I think, who recognized that need that, you know, it's just massively obvious to me. You know, he died three years ago. I don't think he ever really skewered, quote, the elites the way they deserved and the way they deserve. Now, this this is my analysis and passion striking, but he was the soul of moderation. It wasn't as cheap as can't we all get along, but sometimes it was as cheap as things are always getting better and worse. I never use that phrase in my own analysis. I find it less than useful. I think some defeats are fundamental, and I can think of two, a recent one and then a fairly recent one. So in this three-year period, I just wonder, you brought in contempt. One could also bring in anger and maybe even say legitimate or righteous (laughs) anger. I think Peter have to be more hard-edged and have more both passion and dark terms to articulate our contemporary scene in the broadest sense of elites, including academic, but political and economic and entertainment elites v. people. And he only was a year into Trump's, you know, uh, administration. But it seems to me that the animosity, the opposition, the bid for a denial of democratic self-rule is pretty clear. I don't know how he would address that given his moderate temperament and a desire to see something good in even things that he disagreed with. So I think he capitulated to some Supreme Court decisions and some cultural moves, moved on from them way too quickly and then tried to you know, make the best of a bad situation. But I, I honestly think some Supreme Court decisions go to the foundations of our common life and embed deep falsehoods about being human. And in principle, he agreed they were deep falsehoods, but I don't think he kind of felt the war part or the defeat part as much as I do or many conservatives I know. Yes, I think that's right. And one reason we need Peter's wit and his insight so much now is because we have become so dark. But uh, at the same time, as you said, this also means that we would have to ask very seriously, what is the justification of that wit in times that should shock us? Peter was a patriot, he was a conservative, he was a southerner, he had great respect for southern stoicism that is in the service of America. He pointed out things like the great Clint Eastwood movie, American Sniper. Yeah. A man who dedicates himself to saving the lives of his fellow Americans. He's not afraid of death, knows it firsthand, and will therefore be the able protector of his fellow men. He is both greater than they and deserves their admiration, and at the same time he is with them, alike to them, an equal citizen among citizens. Peter was for manliness, as you suggested. He pointed out that manliness is only shown in America in professional sports, and he called that the only real meritocracy in America, as opposed to Harvard or the federal bureaucracy. 
one notices immediately that the American popular sports, with the exception of hockey and to some extent baseball, are dominated by black Americans. This was Peter's way of pointing out that, you know, there are certain ways for American society to get past its racial problems. People don't look at skin color when they see athletic greatness, and they understand that that athletic greatness comes both with a certain amount of intelligence, because you have to plan and to execute and to keep your wits in the midst of pain and chaos, but also it comes with character to an extent. You'll build a reputation, and that reputation will follow you. And in an age of, you know, iPhones and cameras everywhere, if you have a bad reputation because you do bad things, it will destroy whatever you might have by way of achievements. So he was always looking for ways to show that Americans should be more citizens, more careful of each other in a political way. And he was interested, therefore, also in finding common ground with not the enemy, but with the electorate of the Democrat Party. Peter, in a way most of us are not good at doing it, knew very well how to separate the elite from the electorate of a party, and to some extent to separate ideas, which have of course very real consequences since we live on them, live out their implications in our actions, from the intentions of human beings, which also count. This came out of his moderation. To some extent it was temperament, to some extent it was sense of humor. It gave him certain insights, even though it had also limitations. And that limitation was he was not a culture warrior, he wasn't really much of a partisan. He knew that he was not useful in political contest, in electoral contest, or in predictions for that matter. He was uh, in a way too reassured and too reassuring, but as of course something that we desperately need, because when we talk politics, we go from zero to 60 in no seconds flat. It's a perennial necessity. But aside from the pedagogy or the psychology, it has certain theoretical implications. And as a Christian, Peter was just not that political. He didn't think America's founders were, you know, demigods. One of his many joking phrases was polis envy. Like the Freudians talk about penis envy in the case of women, he talked about polis envy in the case of conservatives who are so obsessively political, they sort of wish they were back in, uh, you know, Republican Rome. And indeed, the first example of police envy in America would seem to be the American founders who were constantly writing in the pseudonyms of great Roman patriots. He didn't want people to mythologize either George Washington, whom he had great respect for, or Thomas Jefferson, whom he had some respect for. Yeah. He thought that his atheistic Epicureanism was quite stupid. Peter wasn't all that taken with politics. That is true to our experience. Mm-hmm. We indeed are not, in fact, all that political. We are stuck, like Walker Percy says in Love in the Ruins. Liberalism causes impotence, conservatism causes apoplexy. And yet at the same time, if you look at these people, when they're not busy screaming, they actually live very banal lives that go on. It's a paradoxical fact about our society. We pretend that this is the end of the world, and we never act on that pretense. Pretending we are more political doesn't make us more political. Forms of service, American stoicism would make us more political in practical ways, because politics is primarily practical. I think that Peter was right. Conservatives delude themselves that ideas transform the world because they don't like to do the work, actually. Nevertheless, I do think that we should be open also to the darkness of the truth about the situation we are in. There's more hatred going around, and our elites are super excited about it. We look at our elites with no small hatred ourselves, and we'll see how that turns out. We need councils of prudence and councils of moderation. I especially treasure Peter because moderation is so rare in our political life. There is no money to be made out of it, and the defining thing about American life is there's no liberal liberals trust to tell them to shut up, and there's no conservative conservatives trust to do that. Moderation, even when it goes too far, is still the thing that we most lack. 
since we can't know which of our ideas or actions are going to work, chance is not something we can conquer, either by being super moralistic or by being super technological. And how are we going to live with that uncertainty? We should do so by not swearing that if this goes wrong, we'll destroy the country or destroy each other or abandon each other. You know, our politicians tell us that if you don't donate to this cause and if you don't vote for this thing, the other guys who are the devil will destroy you. If you vote the wrong way, it's the end of America. As our fellow postmodern conservative friend Pete Spiliaco says, that's not an argument to win this election. That's an argument to end elections. Because you can win in 2016, but you might lose in 2020. So we do need moderation to remind us that we have a tendency to draw lines in the sand that we don't really live up to. So I think that even for the committed partisan, for the most dedicated culture warrior, if he is not vicious, he needs to look at what Peter said. All the people who say the Democrats are burning down the country or the Republicans are fascists, they do not become more politically involved in their little town or in their suburb or in their local party or in any voluntary organization to help with a cause that they believe in. That is a very dangerous thing about our society that we should not hide behind professions of morality. Yeah, I don't want to end on the expression of some reservations about a dear friend and a a real uh, lodestar uh, for our times, probably for all times. So uh, for me, Peter was, I'm going to use his phrases to sum him up. Seems to me, Peter was an almost man in full. So he liked the phrase, a man in full. Uh, I do have a few worries, not about his love, but either spiritedness or the concomitant of love, which is anger. So I think he was a, a man almost in full. Okay. Second of all, I don't know if I've ever encountered another person who has the gift of friendship as much as he did. My goodness, we've all, of his fullness, we've all received, <laughs> to blasphemously use a wonderful phrase. And, you know, if by their fruits you shall know them, my goodness, he was very, very, very faithful to his vocation as an intellectual, as a husband, as a friend, as a teacher. So it seems to me that he embodied perhaps the main thing that he learned from the dissidents, but also from the Christians, is we're persons and you need to have a personal point of view. And that does go back to what you were saying, who are you going to believe, the studies or what you actually see? And so he gave all of us permission and an example for using our own eyes and minds and taking our own path. And I think he had a generosity and a guidance that he provided that uh, are always in terribly short supply, but with his loss, even less supply now. I think you're right. And uh, I have some things to say myself that, that I owe Peter, why I'm always grateful whenever I think back to him. But this brings us very well around to our final segment. Peter as editor, where his work, his friendship, his activity on behalf of conservatism, Christianity, American patriotism all come together. And I'm very grateful that you brought this to my attention. Although I have the experience, I had not in fact thought about it adequately before you talked to me about this. Yeah, Peter, in a good sense, he was an academic and an intellectual entrepreneur. Now, that does not mean self-promoting. That does not mean the best seats at the feast. No, he promoted good ideas. He promoted people with good ideas. And so one of the things is he had a series of very close connections with a number of presses or publishing houses. 
Now, frankly, they changed as the leadership of the presses, but he always was connected with at least one, sometimes two, sometimes even more presses where he had an in and therefore he could recommend people who had an interesting monograph to submit it or collections of essays from his conferences or from a panel at the American Political Science Association. He said, boy, let's put those together and beef them up a bit. So he did see how to promote the dissemination of good thought and people's work with presses or publishers, then with periodicals or journals. You know, one of the many sadnesses of his untimely death was that he had just assumed the head of the modern age and I think maybe he got one issue in before he died. But, you know, he would have continued with perspectives on political science. But with modern age, just another wonderful venue for good stuff there. Now, as I told you earlier, he was an editor, but as an editor, he was also a patron. He helped many a grad student get his or her first article published. I was named the book review editor of perspectives on political science. And regularly he would pass me an article and say, Paul, take a look at this. I'd like to run it, you know, and there would be something from a grad student still in grad school, maybe a paper for a course. And well, you just thought of, here was an opportunity to give somebody his first publication. And, you know, that'll put a lot of wind in a young person's sails, as you know. And then likewise, he really had an eye for collecting the work that people were doing and knitting them together because he had a great capacity for synthesis. (laughs) knitting them together in a way that none of the contributors would have been able to do. And so his introductions were always, here's the mosaic, and after I say it, you'll see it. (laughs) You know, he he did it in his own work, but uh, he also did it as an editor, putting together an issue for a journal or a collection of essays. One last thing is, he was very laissez-faire when it came to your prose. So (laughs) he, he did minimal to no editing in that sense of the term. Yeah, this is perhaps the thing that we should most learn. You need, as you say, a certain kind of entrepreneurship, which is a combination of patronage and friendship, the skill to bring people together and to send people to one another so that we organize. He was within the realm of publications, of academia, exactly what Tocqueville mentioned as the American art of association, which has gone out of favor in recent generations. He knew how to make things happen and how to make people friends with each other in such a way that they can work together so that their studies and their careers and their public activity can go together. It was a savvy that he didn't talk much about, That was partly his character and that was partly the character of the situation, but it is sorely missed. If there were a biography of Peter Lawler with a hefty chapter on how he got things done, that would be perhaps the thing that we need to learn that is hardest to learn otherwise. Being practical as opposed to mouthing off, I do it every week, it's a very different skill. It was a touch of greatness, really, to understand what friendship does in its relationship to intellectual concern, to political concern. I don't know anybody quite as useful for that study, quite as admirable as Peter. He indeed gave me my own start as a writer. The sort of career I have is because our common friend Carl Eric Scott brought me to Peter's attention, who invited me to write for Postmodern Conservative. It's the first thing I learned from him and immediately set about finding other people who need some help or guidance. And I've learned, therefore, how many young people in America are struggling because there's nobody like Peter in their particular field or in their particular endeavor. 
Peter didn't boast about it. It was not done with public speeches or with that much institutional backing, but he had a remarkable elasticity, as you said, about meeting people in different places, sending people from one place to another, assembling people in networks. One is reminded of Havel's remark in The Power of the Powerless, the latter half of the essay points out that the biggest delusion people have about democracy is that as soon as we get rid of communism, we can go back to 1900. We're going to have the mass parties and we're going to have those organizations and it's just going to go on as it was, aside from this great big accident. So this is not how it is. The future of organization is going to be, in fact, far more flexible. It is no longer going to have these relationships between national identity and institutional identity that allowed for very clear paths of leadership, elites, and so on and so forth. He was very much aware of how fluid and flexible things would have to be, how identities, networks, and communities would have to be rethought, and indeed that people like Peter would become necessary for any enterprise to come together, for any new foundation which would have to be done in the given context. You cannot wish away what America is like in 2020 for the America we want. We can only work in this situation, move things in the direction we think best insofar as we can secure the help and therefore the educated consent of other citizens. And as much as that is tied with publications, academia and the media, Peter did extraordinary things. Indeed, we miss him. We miss anybody with that kind of ability. I owe Peter, as I said, my career in a significant measure, but also, of course, my friendship with you and with all the other friends of Peter who, including for purposes of this series of podcasts, have very generously agreed to sit and talk about him, to remember him, and at the same time to introduce him to a new audience, to young Americans precisely because this is what we have left. We've lost Peter, but we have the friendships he made for us or prepared for us, and these go a long way. If we wish to achieve new things, if we wish to save the country from the drama we are stuck with now, and just return to a kind of normal drama, since it's never going to be perfect, then we will need these kinds of friendships and this practical attitude. Yeah, he's a model and a always needed, and these days much, much needed model for how to observe, how to come to terms with the moving today, precisely because he could put it in broader context. And that's where the great books or liberal learning gave him foundations and ballast and perspective so that he wasn't swept up (laughs) by the winds. Yeah, I do think that his not participating in uh, partisan politics or practical politics gave him a certain freedom to observe it with an amused eye that I don't always have, but also to attend to these sub or non-political arenas and possibilities that you just so nicely said, you know, Tocqueville saw as our genius and that we desperately need to attend to today. I'm regularly telling my students, we got to, you know, curse the darkness, but light the candles. <laughs> you do have to keep an eye open for the bright spots in higher education. And maybe maybe we could end with him on higher education, because that may have been his deepest love. And again, I think, you know, his two audiences were young people and then conservatives. It's not that he, he despaired of people on the left, but he just thought conservatives naturally wanted to conserve. <laughs> And they had something to give the young people that would help orient them as they entered into adulthood and assume the duties thereof. So, yeah, Peter, as educator and on higher education, he was a living model of how it allows you to most thoughtfully participate in today. 
from those movie reviews to the synthesis of the debate of the day between Tyler Cowen and Peter Thiel and uh, Yuval Levin, you know, just this ability to synthesize the legitimate and productive debates. But he also, in print, defended liberal education and especially the institutions that still practice it. Maybe, to use Alan Bloom's famous image, uh, their hats were a little crooked and their rouge was a little smudged. I'm not looking for perfection here, bro. (laughs) So I like the way he would appeal both to conservatives and liberals to make his case for pluralism in higher education, pluralism, a liberal virtue. I said, look, Oberlin can be Oberlin, but let BYU be BYU. America is big enough and America is grand enough to be a haven for both those. Now, that said, he's been gone three years and a lot more hmm, data and bad news about more swaths of higher education has come to our attention. So, again, I might want a little bit more fight than plea, but okay, so some thoughts on Peter as educator, but about higher education. Yes, the future of higher education is far more dubious now than it was even a few years back, and we'll see what can be done, but we assume that we need to, even there, create institutions, find the kinds of people that would uh, be willing to dedicate themselves and uh, who have the abilities and the talents to dedicate themselves to new institutions or to new beginnings for existing institutions. Should conservatives want to found anything? Should conservatives be willing to pay for institutions that are serious and honestly American, not subsumed to some ugly ideology trying to brainwash kids or turn them into angry mobs? Then a lot of Peter's friends and protégés, among whom I count myself, would be willing and able to do something. Even in this way, he has, from his writing and his activity in the classroom to his public writing and his willingness to be a public intellectual has prepared the way and trained and encouraged people to educate themselves so that this could be done if we wish to do it. Peter famously said that the tenured radicals aren't the problem, it is the bureaucrats who are the problem. Those are the people encouraging both the brainwashing and the angry mob, and it's because they don't really have anything else to offer. And they are in cahoots with the Republicans who, if they don't want to cut higher education, they just think about it as productivity. They donate to causes, but that cause never is liberal arts. That cause is never learning about the true greatness of America, about history and politics and the liberal arts and all these things. These things are held in contempt and they are a rare option besieged on all sides that has to be defended in a non-partisan way. The liberal arts aren't the same thing as Republican partisanship or the conservative movement. They are great contributors, as Peter himself proved, but they need a certain autonomy. And of course, given the legal and political threat to diversity of thought and diversity of work in academia in America, this is a case where conservatives have to be realistic and not hope that they can take over academia in a heartbeat. But indeed, it would not be enough to plea for tolerance because it might not be forthcoming. Tolerance is in the power of whoever controls the laws and the money and the accreditation. And Peter hated the accreditation as much as he hated the bureaucrats. He understood that these are all tools of progressive intimidation and thought control. But he was never tired of pointing out that if conservatives were anything like what they say, they would be paying for higher education because they'd be doing it for their kids and for the country. And yet they never do. 
they are not to be trusted because they constantly destroy the few oases left in the name of productivity, in the name of practical skills in higher education. They do not have respect for the liberal arts. He tried hard to change it, again, to criticize without too much animus to make sure that he does not make himself so unlike that he will not be listened to. But it is the case that we do not have, as conservatives, much to brag about by way of founding academic institutions. Productivity and, broadly speaking, the free market are excuses for people who really don't give a damn and really don't give a damn about their kids or the next generation, which is a very dangerous attitude for a political party or a political movement ever to take, since there is always a next generation. Who start out as barbarians and the whole point of everything is to civilize. (laughs) So, yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean, like all conservatives, Peter believed that the family really is the basis of society. You learn about love, you learn about good character and good habits from your mother and father. You learn by being a good brother and a good sister. You learn in these, in a way, thoughtless ways, because they have a trust in the immediacy that stays with you for life. But of course, at some point, people need a serious education. People need to know what it is to be American and how not to become prey of their anger, how not to become simply indignant ideologues, which does not make them competent. We hope that the example of Peter and all his friends will add up to something, that conservatives will be more willing to take this passage from barbarism to civilization seriously. One of the things that Peter meant by saying that things are always getting better and worse is that it's only when things get bad that you become serious, and that's good. I think in these times about how conservatives have promised us that their own elite education, the federal society and the federal judiciary are going to save us from progressive attacks on America's heritage. What have these people achieved? Well, now gay marriage is the law of the land and transgender is a civil rights identity with the blessing of our conservative judiciary. It is an assault on American history and politics that's hard to describe adequately without getting angry, so I will not even try. It will have to suffice to say that this has never happened before in the history of the world. We can call this progress for that reason, or indeed a catastrophe, but we cannot call it conservatism. But it was done by conservative elites, and it was done with the approval of conservative elites. These people are not to be trusted. They would have to be scrutinized from an independent point of view. So we need the sometimes ironic Peter, and we need, of course, the wit and the insight. We will have to be partisan. We will have to act politically, which is a lot of boredom, waiting, and anger. Happily, there are people who like the anger, and so probably we can get it done. But we need guidance. Part of that requires learning about politics, what it really and truly is. And part of that requires the liberal arts. Our founders did it, and Lincoln did it, and we have to learn too. I I feel like saying, on that happy note, (laughs) I I yield to no one in my political and cultural despair. I don't feel the need to articulate or express it. So I will say at this point, uh, read Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, to find out the scientific, biological definition and truth about sex, and then go from there. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about Peter. Fantastic. It's the Christian way. It's Peter and Paul, and Paul is more talkative. <laughs> now, can I tell you, you know, my full name is Peter Paul, and I'm a junior, so I go by Paul because my dad goes by Pete. But Paul was irascible, and Peter was dumb. So I, I got the vices of my two. So. 
So I, 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 I cop uh, to Thumos, and uh, I'm sometimes a little slow on the update. <laughs> okay. Paul, it was a wonderful conversation. We have gone through the light and the dark. This is the situation we're dealing with now, and in a way, it's just human yeah. nature. It's great to be able to remember our friend Peter and think about what we can do and what we can think about in light of what we have learned from him to deal with the situation we are in since he has left us now. It is indeed three years since Peter died and our friends are preparing a fest shrift, uh, essays by Peter and essays by his friends and interlocutors in honor of his life and his thought. And uh, in the meantime, we have these podcasts to remember him and to introduce those who did not know him that they too may learn. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Titus. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye.